Welcome to Candidly Speaking. I'm your host, Jim Watkins, here on Urantia Book Radio. Joining us this time up is Urantia Association International President from the great state of Wisconsin, Green Bay. Chris Wood joins me on Candidly Speaking. How long have you been the president of Urantia Association? How did you get involved as well? I was elected president uh, for a little more than a year. In April 1st of 2013, I took office. The little joke we have in the association is everyone takes office on April Fool's Day. Um, I became involved in the community back in 1998 when I stopped by the foundation just randomly. Um, And there I met a lot of nice people like Connie Green and Bob Stallone and also Tonya Bainey and Kathy Jones, and they immediately put me to work. So Kathy uh, was forming was helping people organize your ranch association uh, at the time. And so she was setting up a local association in Kansas City, which is where I was living at the time, or at least is uh, where I saw him home. And so I was a founding member of your ranch association of Kansas City. And over time, I volunteered at the foundation for about two years, maybe three years. I was on staff at the foundation. Um, and with the Ranch Association, I was a vice president of the local association. Uh, I was a president of a local association. I was vice president of the national association. And from there, I was uh, nominated and was elected for the uh, international presidency. What do you think is the reason you keep getting nominated for these positions? Is there some special skill that you have? Uh, are you a super, super duper organized kind of person? What, what's your secret? I don't consider myself well organized. Uh, very well organized people are. I'm more of the type of person who remembers things about an hour before they need to happen. I, I rarely forget the thing, but I don't necessarily remember until it's just right. Uh, you know, I took a course and probably about 2,000 on the internet, uh, on the internet, your ancient book internet school. Mm-hmm. And it was on angels. And I, I specifically remember reading about the angels and the way that they try to guide people through their lives. And they basically will set you up in a situation where you're supposed to make a good choice. And if you don't make a good choice, it's fine. They'll just set you up in a situation where you're supposed to make this, the good choice again. And they'll keep doing it until you start making a good choice, and until that good choice becomes not just a choice you make, but a habit and part of who you are. And then they'll continue to set you up in new situations, and that's how you grow as a person. And so my wife and I, and I I married a a Urantia book student, and we were very conscious in just saying that when situations arise, we want to look for ways to say yes to service as opposed to say no. Because a lot of people, you ask them to do something, and they look for a reason to say no that you will find acceptable and let them off the hook. Mm-hmm. And so we decided that we would instead look for ways to say yes. And if we have to say no, we will say no. But we're always looking for a way to say yes. And so I think that's part of the reason why I've continued to be nominated for positions is because they know that if they ask me, I will look for a way to, to make it happen. And, you know, part of it is because, you know, uh, I know the angels are going to make my life interesting, so I want it to be interesting in a way that, you know, is 
that is fun for me, and I want to, I want to, I want this to be a choice, you know, this interesting life, and embrace it. Mm-hmm. Well, um, that's a great answer, and I think, uh, I think there's, there's something that everybody can take away from that. Um, so, in your current position as the president of the Urantia Association International, what do you see as the uh, primary objective for you personally and for UAI? Well, for uh, well, overall, for the, for the association, what we're trying to do is, you know, train teachers, train leaders, and foster study groups. And more, the more immediate way that we're doing this is we're helping people organize into their local and national associations. So, for example, we're going to have a new association uh, just this month, in August of 2014, in uh, the Netherlands. And we have more uh, starting to creep up in Germany, in Nigeria and Costa Rica, and I think in Argentina as well. And so that's that's maybe the next year, maybe year and a half is how many will be. So what that means is, is that in these cities around the world, you have people who are starting to learn about the Urantia book. And as they get to know more about it, the first thing they learn from either you or the foundation is, well, you know, we encourage people to form study groups. Uh, And so it's exciting to hear about that because what you're basically saying is these little seeds are starting to sprout around the world and you are helping to coordinate uh, the efforts of these people that are discovering the Urantia book. Absolutely. And most people find the Urantia book and they don't do anything with it. They might read it for years, if not decades, and yet they won't contact anyone else. And so when they make contact, we want people to know that they have a system set up so that we can help them. And helping them is, could just mean telling them everyone we know in their city or telling them everyone we know in their area. And if there's already some sort of organization, a national association in their country, then we want to you know, help them contact those people. But we want uh, people to know that there's a good community already in existence. And if there's not one in existence, then... That's their mission. Their mission is to help foster a good community. And people really respond to this. They like the idea that they're building something that might last for, you know, more than just a lifetime. Sure. And so, but your work really doesn't start until people discover the book for themselves. In other words, you're not out there promoting and marketing, and your work really starts once the initiative is taken from a person who has found the book and say, you know, some small city in Nigeria. What 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 city in Nigeria, by the way? Um, well, it'll be a national association in Nigeria, and we have a. It's in the main town city, and I'm, I know I'm going to butcher this, but it's uh, Niamey, mm-hmm. perhaps N I A M E Y. And so there is. What constitutes or what makes it possible for? Is there like a minimum amount of people that have to be wanting to, that are in a study group? What are the parameters for somebody to join uh, for, your association? So for there to be a, a local association, there needs to be at, uh, 10 people who have read the entire Urantia book and who want to help um, you know, develop the Urantia book in their city or their country. For a national association, there needs to be 30 members. 
And people can join if they haven't read the entire Urantia book. They'll join as what we call just associate members or non-voting members who will can still help. They can still enjoy everything in the community. What they can't do is they can't hold uh, elected office. And because if you're going to hold elected office and represent the community, we'd like you to have read the entire Urantia book. Sure, sure. Can a person be, say, uh, a minister of a church and still be able to... Can they believe in other faiths specifically, and this just happens to be one of their faiths, or how, how does that work? Yeah, we do have people who are uh, ministers in their churches or rabbis in their um, in their synagogues, and you know, there's a great debate in the Urantia community about what will the future look like in 200 years, 300, 400 years, will there be uh, fewer religions and more Urantia book readers, and maybe the Urantia community itself is, takes the place as, of a religion? Or will there still be just as many religions, but more Urantia book readers within those uh, religions? And so, in other words, the Urantia teachings will have uplifted all of the religions. Mm -hmm. Sure. You might ask yourself, you know, is it feasible, or do we sort of kind of hope that a Urantia community would be here in the future to prepare for, say, the reception of a Melchizedek or Macaventa or somebody like that. Yeah, and in fact, many people back in, say, the 70s who were working for the Foundation and the Brotherhood, uh, that's what they thought. That's how they were thinking about their work and their lives was that they were preparing for a future teacher son or a, some sort of, you know, the next... Uh, yeah, a welcoming party of sorts, right? That's a great way to think about things, I think, because you know we we know that it's going to take more than just our lifetime, right? We we believe it's going to take uh, a thousand years. Gets thrown around a lot, and there's some contextual evidence for a thousand years. But um, but we know that it's, that we're building something big, and so what we don't want is to uh, is to rush it. We want to make sure that we're just laying the first brick of this you know, foundation that will be built upon by not just, you know, my children or my grandchildren, but by their children. And, and it will be 10 or 15 generations down the road, maybe, before this thing really starts to take off. Mm -hmm. It's interesting to speculate where what the, tra the uh, trajectory of the Arantia book is, but I think it's plain to see that, you know, there, it's first of all, it's an honor. Uh, anyone who understands the book and has had the opportunity to truly read it understands it, it's an honor to have in one's possession this much knowledge and information and spiritual insight and truth and all of those things so i i think uh for you it must be exciting to be you know the president of of an of an association that is connected with this this is a an historical event so i i, I imagine those thoughts do go through your your mind from time to time yes and I think about these things a lot, and I talk about these things a lot. Um, one, one idea that, another idea that gets talked about, say, at, you know, 1 o'clock in the morning on some, at some random conference is, you know, are we like John the Baptist, and we're, pro, and we're waiting to proclaim the next teacher's son, and that's how we should, the, the community should think about itself, or are we a revelation um, 
that will take hold in and of itself, you know? There, there are certain degrees, I think, in my experience, and I'll ask you if it's your experience, do you run into certain fringe groups of the Arantia book that sort of come across as being, you know, a little strange? Yes, we have our uh, wacky corners just as anyone does. Yeah. I think that, but I think if you look at just religions across the world, there are some very weird corners of, say, Christianity. And we're, you know, on an international scale, we're dealing with some very weird with some very weird corners of, say, Islam. And I think all religions have their weird corners. The people who, are, you know, claim to be members of their religion, even though they're kind of wacky and get pushed off to the side. Mm-hmm. Maybe because the Arantia movement is so small, those those people who we who we would think of as just being on the fray and on the outside. Because there's not so many of us, they get more voice. Right. But well, I know, like for example, in some circles, channeling is still, I mean, is sort of dabbled with. And and you know, I'm a pragmatist. I, I'm, you know, I, I, from my understanding, channeling is. And and maybe I've been influenced by William Sadler because he was a true skeptic, and I and I try to have that sort of uh, perception. So I'm always a little bit sensitive, uh, you know. But have you run into that where you have people who claim that they they've received some new information? Yeah, that's pretty common, actually. Is it? Um, and yeah. I think that channeling. I, I look at channeling actually as two distinct uh, groups that I group them into. And one of them is a cultural remnant, and you run into this in South America a lot, Colombia a lot, um, where it's. It, it, Say in Colombia, it's not it's not unusual for there just to be a poster up that says that some famous doctor from a hundred years ago is going to be giving a lecture tonight in the church, hmm. and that's kind of part of their culture that um, that if the Arantia teachings were introduced, it would go away, but you know it's just kind of part of you know who they are and it's part of their cultural heritage, right? And but they're not claiming to represent the Arantia book. It's just that's part of what's going on in their culture. Yeah, yeah. The second part are the people who are who do this sort of mediumship and they claim to represent the Urantia. And I think that's more... Uh, I, I look at that as more of a challenge to the standard Urantia because we don't Because we don't have a central leadership structure as a traditional religion would, you know, we just have volunteers who elected to office and are term limited, so we can't stay around forever. Mm-hmm. Um, there's no one to really say that that's absolutely not the case. We put out papers, we show the evidence of the Urantia book that says that, you know, that they're not going to be uh, channeling and talking to us in this way, but um, there are channel, there's, a, there's many people out there, and you'll find them, say, in uh, the west coast of the United States or in parts of Southern Asia, who that's part of their religion is talking to spirits. And so maybe this, there's some people out there who talk to spirits and they are do so with, you know, with a knowledge of the Urantia book. And so they have a, they're the highest talking to spirits religion on the planet because they have the Urantia book teachers involved. Right. Yeah, that's interesting. Uh, how many readers worldwide do you think there are right now, realistically, based on what you know? And where do you think the greatest, well, you know, uh, we've talked about this. Where is the greatest growth occurring and how many reader, readers, not people who necessarily 
you know, subscribe to it wholly, but just people who are familiar enough with it. How many people do you think know about the Arantia book, in your opinion? That is, uh, there's a lot of fuzzy math involved. Yeah. Uh, we know that about a million books have been sold over the course of the last 50 years. A million books over 50 years. Over 50 years. Now, what we don't account for, of course, is that I've got about a dozen of them in my dining room. <laughs> So, well, I have four of them myself, so there you go. <laughs> so how many of those are unique to you? Um, we know that there is probably combined about 25,000 names on databases of people who have contacted um, the association or the foundation or the fellowship. So 25,000 people is at least, and a million is the most. And my best guess, but from traveling around and meeting people and just trying to get a sense of numbers, is that there's about 100,000 people who are involved enough to, say, attend a study group. Who, if, you know, if we played a game of telephone, trying to contact every student of the Arantia book that we knew, I think our list would eventually grow to be about 100,000. Mm. So, uh, the problem uh, is that every year we meet individuals and even entire families who uh, have been reading the Ranch book for decades and they've just never contacted it. Mm -hmm. So how many of those are out there? Is it, we've got a an extra 100,000 of those? Are there an extra 200,000 of those? That's where we just don't really know. Uh, for those who have just joined me, I'm speaking with Chris Wood. He is the president of Urantia Association International, enjoying this conversation on Urantia Book Radio. Um, where is the, the biggest amount of growth occurring of the Arantia book? It'll be in South America by far. Um, South America and Central America, Spanish-speaking world, really. Uh, it's just been on fire the last 10 years. And part of that is because the translations are now available. We have just 20 years ago that the Spanish translation became available and distribution of it um, you know, has been slow to pick up and it's going um, faster now and hopefully will continue to grow in the next five years. And the Portuguese translation has only been available for maybe 10 years. So Brazil, um, so Brazil's really the place where it's growing the fastest if you just wanted to look at one country. Do you think this, um, do you, th now they haven't come out with the Chinese translation, but it, they're working on it, right? They're working on it, yeah. It's a difficult translation because you know, you're, you're trying to go from, uh, you know, a, your Latin source uh, languages to your East Asian source languages, and it's just a hard transition to make. Are you aware of any kind of growth in English readership in China? I know that some people have uh, have the Rancho book, and I know that's been placed in certain libraries in China. But what we don't know is the growth. Um, you know, we know that Christian. Uh, Churches are aren't easy to thrive in China as it is because of uh, just social and government suppression. Well, they're going to love this book because it says nothing but great things about you know their culture and, and their history. I mean, it's it's. Uh, can you think of anything disparaging that it says about the yellow the yellow race? Uh, other than they, you know, f you know, kicked out the red race, the the Amer you know the Amerinds. 
Um, but I mean, the the book, the, I've often thought in my own mind that the one place I think where this book is really going to take off is China. Uh, they have a very disciplined attitude. Um, I mean, do you agree with me? No. Do you see why I might have that? Uh, you know that that idea. I, I do think that it could really take off in China. Um, you know, there's the growing uh, communist influence of just secularism and the lack of religion, and that's going to be a problem. Mm-hmm. What we've seen in places like Eastern Europe is that you know, because of the influence of the Soviet, religion really was suppressed for a long time, but when the, when the communism fell... Uh, people were ready to re-embrace religion, but they didn't. But as individuals, they weren't married to a religion necessarily. And so, I've met Urantia book students, for example, in Croatia, who are you know, spiritually hungry and tell me that their entire you know country, especially their generation, these are people in their thirties and twenties, uh, you know, are very hungry for religion, but they don't necessarily go and re-embrace Catholicism or the Greek Orthodox Church because it doesn't mean anything to them personally. You know, they weren't raised in that religion. They don't have that personal connection. I've heard Estonia, really, uh, there's a huge uh, proportion to the, you know, the population, uh, proportional to the population, but I hear Estonia is another place where the Arantia book has a, a high amount of readership. Is that true? That's true. Estonia and Finland might have, uh, just as proportion of the population, the highest rate of your students in the world. Right, and we and we know from media reports that those countries typically are secular. Uh, right. But what that really means is they are not religious in tradition, but maybe spirituality is more attractive to them. And you know, I think you'd agree that most people are drawn to the fact that the Arantia book allows you to be spiritual without necessarily being tied to a particular religion. Right, and that's what, uh, and that's what I think will appeal to a lot of people who live in a secular culture. And so mm-hmm. we have these, I don't know if we want, probably want to call them fights, but maybe the challenges being faced uh, in different parts of the, of the world. So in, in Scandinavia, for instance, it's secularism, and it's a growing secularism. And Pakistan, they're you know they're fighting the suppression of established religion, and it's you know it's dangerous to be a grantable student in Pakistan. Is it really? Wow. Yeah, I, I would imagine, right? Right, because if you think, I mean, in, in tribal areas where people, you know, and even Islamabad is still highly, you know, tribal, uh, you don't have the protection of the Christians, you don't have the protection of the Sunnis, you don't have the protection of the Shiites. You're just outliers and um, and so you can be, you know, there's, there's no one to protect you. Mm-hmm. In the United States, we have what, you know, I, I don't quite call secularism, I think it's more materialism. I think, you know, the United States is really leading the world in our materialistic culture and our, and our love of materialism. Um, and we know from the ranch book that this is a stage we have to go through in, in societal development. And so, but we're, we're really heavy into it. You see people walking down the street with their face in their phone, mm-hmm. and more and more people are interacting through their computer as opposed to interacting in person. And so that's something we get, that's just a challenge we get to meet. And we know that we'll come out the other side of it as you know, better human beings. But 
nonetheless, it's what we're challenged with right now. This, you know, this next decade. I want to. Oh, I want to get back to this question we were talking about this the other day um, about how UAI is a little different from the fellowship, and you had brought up the point that. America has a certain way of celebrating itself in, in our culture. And you had brought up something about how the rest of the world sort of... The, the question is, how are the study groups different from one another in, in various countries? What are, the, what are the things that you notice traveling as you do about the different ways that countries or cultures embrace? Uh, for example, you're going to Germany for a, a conference here in a couple of weeks. How do they... What's the difference between the way they do study groups and the way we do them here in America? What you'll find is that each country has a, a religious language almost, the way they interact with each other. So in the United States, um, you see a lot of singing uh, in churches and even in study groups and religious activities. You see people bring out a guitar and you know, sing folk music. You see people hold hands in a circle and pray. That's a very American thing to do. And at your rancher gatherings, you'll see that also. You know, you'll see songs, you'll see people holding hands and circles and praying. In Germany, you don't see that. That's not part of who they are as a culture. Um, they're going to express their, you know, they're going to keep their religion very personal. And if they express it, they're going to express it as part of who they are, you know, as, uh, as a conversation. But they're not going to hold their hands up and pray as like we'll see in America. In South America, say, you might see it more in dance. I was in Colombia, and you don't see, you know, instead of seeing people with guitars, instead of seeing this and that, you'll see people get up and dance in a way that, as, you know, a white male in the United States, I don't necessarily dance. Mm -hmm. <laughs> the way that you see it in Latin America. Um, and so, in each country, you'll see this. In each major section of the world, you'll see people express their, you know, their spiritual attitude, you know, they give these very, I guess I should say they, they physicalize their spiritual uh, expression. And it's different in each, in each country and it's different in each culture. So what we try to do in the association is make sure that the culture of the Urantia book does not become married to just one culture. Just because the Urantia book... Uh, you know, we started in the United States in Chicago and started quickly throughout the United States and in English. We don't want the United States culture to be married to the Urantia book community. Yeah, I think and there's so, a there's the line is you don't want to contaminate. You don't want them to make this a Western thing, or you know, which is basically what Christianity has become. It's an Occidental religion. Uh, is is that correct? That's right, and we definitely want to keep that from happening with the Urantia book, to the best we can. Uh, we don't want people to be turned off to the Urantia book in Africa or in China because they just see it as something they do in the United States. Right. Yeah, no, I understand. That makes sense. How, how is the, what's the difference between what the Foundation does and what you do and what the Fellowship does? How, how do all three of those, what I would consider probably the, big, the, the triad organizations that have sprung up from the Urantia book, uh, how are you all different, and how do you all work with one another? Uh, so my answer, and again, I think if you ask someone from the foundation or you ask someone from the fellowship, they will give you a different answer. My answer is that I see the community being charged with six different uh, events or six different activities. 
to publish the Urantia book, to distribute the Urantia book, and to translate the Urantia book, train teachers, to train leaders, and to foster study. So the foundation, as I see it, takes on the first three of those. They translate, they publish, and they distribute the Urantia book. And that, in and of itself, is a great challenge. And, you know, it, it's, a, it's a lifetime's worth of work right there. Just sure. In the country. Yeah. The association takes on the last three. We, we uh, take on training teachers, training leaders, and fostering study groups. And don't get me wrong, the, you know, the foundation does a little bit of all of that also, and we also do a little bit of book distribution. Mm-hmm. We'll, we'll, uh, man a, we'll, we'll help people... Set up a book fair, uh, set up a booth at a book fair across the world. Do you ever run into a situation where uh, somebody is coming after you at at the arrange? You know, perhaps some religious church group that thinks you guys are you know they're putting you on the same level as say something like Scientology or something. Do you get people who come after you and uh, and do you have to sort of go into PR mode or do those kinds of things ever happen to the association? Not yet in person, um, of course. On the internet, you'll find all kinds of oh, sure. accusations. But no one's come to me as a person wanting to do that. What I do know is that a few, just a couple years ago, uh, people will make documentaries, and with you know 150, 1,000 channels out there these days, sure. And so someone was wanting to do a documentary on the Urantia book, but they were basically wanting to do it in the tone of, look at these crazy people and the crazy things they believe. And they wanted to interview people at the foundation, and they wanted to, um, you know, get you to the, put your no. foot in the mouth. And they, yeah, they're looking for a story, right? So right. They're, they're they're looking for sensation, and that's the thing is, you know, the Urantia community we're not that sensational. We're kind of boring. Um, even back in the seventies and eighties, when I would, there were articles written about the Urantia book, and there was one where it was called the housewife's religion, which is to say. You know, we just go about our daily routine, and it's part. Of, it becomes part of who we are. Mm-hmm. But we're not. We're not activists. You know, we're right. Right. We're not out there trying to sending people out two by two. Uh, you know, to every to every city in the world. Or what was your experience? We were talking about. Um, you know, you grew up with the book. Uh, it was always your parents were readers, and you had mentioned to me previously that you weren't always convinced about its credibility. Uh, you kind of had to find that discovery on your own. When, at what point, and if you want to share with us, what was the turning point in your sort of appreciation of the Urantia book? So I'd read the Urantia book as a teenager, still living at home. Um, and for me, you know, I don't know, I'm in a family of, you know, open Urantia book students, it's hard to rebel, really. So Maybe my rebellion was I wanted it to be um, a personal thing for me. I didn't want to share it with my parents. I certainly didn't want to admit that my parents might be right about something. So when I went off to college, I wouldn't even necessarily call myself a real student of the Rancho book. And it was when I was at college and I had to, you know, doing the deep thinking that people do at that age, I had to come up with, I, I guess I came to an understanding of God. You know, I was trying to figure out if I believe in God or not. And as much intellectualizing as you can do about that, it's not really an intellectual pursuit. It's a spiritual pursuit, or at least that's how I came to understand it. And so, sort of like how you can never 
divide a number by two and ever reach zero, you'd have to make that magic leap to zero. Mm-hmm. And once I made that magic leap to zero um, and really came to understand that God existed, then I had to explore what God was to me and my relationship with God. And even this was outside the Urantia book, even though I'd read the Urantia book and it was certainly influenced by it. But once I came to understand that, you know, God was, that God existed and that God doesn't look down upon anyone else, that you know, we're all in this together and that we're all, excuse me, that we're all children of God. Then I started to look at the Urantia book and I started to look at it in a more, with a more critical eye, looking for something that I disagreed with. And it wasn't until I really started looking at the Urantia book for something to disagree with and couldn't find anything to disagree with, and then went and started interacting with other students of the Urantia book as an adult. You know, I wasn't just the child of Mike and Cindy Wood, but I was a young adult myself. That's when I really started to embrace the Urantia book and became in, involved in the Urantia community quite heavily, um, is when I, I, I came to accept it as something that was mine, and something that I believed in for myself outside of my family, outside of my environment, that it was something that was important. I hear people come up with different, you know, answers for how they came to it. Um, you know, one of my friends uh, came to believe in God because she was sitting in a symphony and while listening to the beautiful music, uh, you know, a, a relationship with God came to her and she started crying in the middle of the symphony. Um, I have another friend who was busy and working on a project in Colorado all summer and but it was raining a lot and so he would spend the rainy season inside in the basement reading stacks of books that he had found and one of them was the urantia book and he's just reading it and about halfway through he realizes that it's real and he shuts it and throws it across the room because he's got he's got enough projects he doesn't need one more you know (laughs) that's pretty funny it's a good story Uh, one characteristic is um it's one of the first questions people ask you. You know, if you go to a study group for the first time, somebody invariably will say, "So, how did you find the Arantia book?" You know, and then of course, a lot of us enjoy telling our stories because uh, they usually mean it was a, a, a pivotal moment in our life. Chris, there's a conference coming up in Berlin. Uh, yes. Tell us about that. What's going on there? And uh, are we all invited, or is this just you know upper brass? Or tell us what the conference is all about. Absolutely, everyone's invited and everyone should go. If you go to um, the Urantia Association website, which is just urantia-association.org, or you can Google us, you will find it under our events. It's, uh, it's August 21st through 24th in Berlin. It'll be in English. So certainly anyone uh, who's you know from the United States or who's comfortable in English should attend. Um, it is an organization that they're trying. They're trying to start more continental conferences, and it's something that I like to see happen throughout the world. Say a North American conference, a South American conference, a European conference that can uh, that can serve just the needs of that community of that continent, which is not necessarily the needs of say every country in the world. And so they're starting it. This is the first one they're trying after several more local conferences under the leadership of the Blue Club, which is a a club that uh, started up around the Urantia book a few years ago in Germany. 
And so I'll be there, and I know many other people from the United States will be going. And, um, yeah, it'll be a good time, and I'm really looking forward to see what comes out of it and what can become, you know, the next step for uh, continental leadership in Europe as far as the Urantia community goes. Because we have, we have a lot of readers in Spain and France and England and Germany. A new association is building in uh, the Netherlands, uh, Sweden, Finland, Estonia, Ukraine, all these countries, you know, have communities, and it'd be great if they got together and, you know, interacted more and mm. certainly put on events more often. So as this sense of a European Union comes about more in their culture, I'd like to see that expand to the ranch community. Who pays for this? Is it all just based on people have to, you know, they, they come up with how much it's going to cost to rent the event and they recommend hotel rooms nearby? And uh, is it an expensive event? Uh, three days, what, three days a week? So this is, they're taking, uh, they're taking an approach to conference budgeting that is so simple, I'm surprised I haven't thought of it myself. And what's that? It's being a simple mind myself. But they are just <laughs> charging for the the room rental of the of the facility they're using, so they're charging fifty dollars per or, sorry fifty euros per person, but each person will have to provide their own uh, room to stay in and their own food. So you know there's restaurants nearby, so they they provide a list of restaurants nearby or grocery stores nearby. They provide a list of hotels and hostels nearby, and so. You know, if five people want to go and get a small hotel room together and just crash on the floor, they can, and it can be a oh, I very see. cheap rent. If you want your own room and you want to eat at uh, restaurants for each meal, then it'll be a more expensive conference. But that way, it's priced out depending on the individual. Um, in the United States, at least the conferences, most conferences I attend, it's all just kind of a package. You get a room, you get your food, you get your conference experience, and it's all just one bill. And so it's certainly easier for the organizers to plan it this way. Yeah. And, and hopefully the, the attendees like it also. Well, it's, it, you know, it's kind of tantamount to saying, hey, we're having a conference here this day and this day in Berlin. If you want to come, get your own hotel and bring a sandwich. Right. <laughs> yeah. So, well, look, look, Chris, it's been a pleasure to talk to you. I know uh, we'll talk again when you come back. I'd love to chat with you. And I'm sure the listeners of your Ancho Book Radio would like to hear how the conference went. Um, is there anything that we as Urantia Book students, uh, even uh, even those of us who don't attend study groups, uh, what can we do to help you and in, in your efforts? Well, as an individual, the best thing you can do is live your life in a way that attracts others, that makes it so that people look at you and say, hey, that's a neat guy. I wonder what it is that makes him what it is, what, you know, what he is. Um, you know, I... I we're, I was just at a Ranch Book conference maybe a week ago. Yeah, about a week ago. And we had a, a there was a workshop I attended, and we talked about how much Jesus smiled, and that even Jesus and Gannon went across the city one day and just smiled at people and just to see their reactions. And so living your life in a way that's inviting makes people want to know what it is that you've got and what it is that you know, and maybe that attracts them to the Ranch Book. Because in the end, the only way or your, the only way that the ranch community grows is one-on-one. You know, someone comes up to you and says, what is it that you've got? I want it. And you say, it's the ranch book. Here it is. 
I hope you read it. Mm. Okay, that's one way we can help you. So what's the other way? Another way is to get involved. We need leaders. Uh, we need people willing to do the work. And, uh, you know, the best, thing, the best thing that could happen for me and for my family is if in two and a half years when I'm up for election again, someone runs for election and wins the presidency. <laughs> and, and okay. Sure. All right. Well, right. well, you know, we'll put the we're word all, out. <laughs> right. We're all volunteers. And so someone else needs to, needs to pick up the torch and carry it forward. All right. Um, Very good. These things, these things get stale. If you just let the same people be in charge the whole time, it gets stale and it becomes less inviting. We need new voices and new ideas constantly. Yeah, maybe uh, you know Washington could learn a little bit from that statement. Um, maybe that's why things aren't getting done. You know, on a closing note, Chris, um, as I watch these things unfold in Gaza and uh, Israel and that whole conflict that's going on there, and I think back to the times you know when Jesus actually walked that area. Uh, boy, things have really, uh, the contrast, uh, I, I think it says something about the times that we're in and how far we, in some ways, we've gotten closer to, to, to God and, and, and we've definitely progressed. I would, I would say that the uh, life carriers are probably somewhat pleased. But in other ways, when you see the display of, of, of anger and conflict, it's, it's, it's very... Uh, to me, it tells me that the world is ripe for a spiritual rejuvenation. Uh, we need hope. And I think you'll agree with me that this is one of the greatest things about the book, is it gives you hope. There is a way. We will persevere. We will get past this. Uh, so I appreciate your efforts because you're helping to spread the word, and I hope you'll come back and be a guest again. I look forward to it. And once again, I would like to extend a, a great appreciation and a huge thank you to my guest, uh, Chris Wood from Green Bay on Candidly Speaking. Chris, the president of Urantia Association International. This is Candidly Speaking.